Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled The Table Has Been Set was given by Darren Roundson on April 24th, Easter Sunday of 2011. Morning. His resurrection changed everything. Amen. He's risen. Say that again. He is risen. This video does an amazing job of, of conveying a very unique paradigm that we currently live in a world of despair, of brokenness, of pain, of suffering. Yet we on Easter Sunday tell one very unique story that Jesus of Nazareth lived, died, was buried and was resurrected from the dead, and somehow we have the audacity to say that changed everything. Good morning, guys. My name's Darren, and I'm one of the pastors here, and there's a bunch of new people, so welcome. 
Um, but I want to share with you, I get the privilege of sharing with you the, the resurrection story this morning. And I want to share with you a couple of observations about the resurrection and talk about the, the heart of the message of Jesus Christ and its implications for us this morning. So if you would, let's go together and read the resurrection story out of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, raise your hand and we'll give you one of these red Bibles. We're going to Luke chapter 24. How's the nine o'clock service doing? Good? First 9 a.m., nobody wanted to sit in the decorated seats. What's up with that? Come on. They're they're reserved for people like you. Come on. Um, Sorry. Yeah, you guys can sit up here if you want. You might get some spit, but it's cool. Um, Okay, so um, Luke chapter 24, that's page 860 in the Red Bibles. Um, We'll have it on the screen. But um, we want to read about the resurrection, and, and Luke is one of the four gospel writers. He writes a very unique perspective of Jesus as a man, a prophet, a teacher, as the Son of God and the Messiah, and he's writing a, a historical account, a narrative of what happened to Jesus and giving a, a, a testimony to those that will read, those that will, will understand and, and follow Jesus. This is a testimony about his life and his resurrection. So let's read the story together, starting in um, the end of 23. Uh, On page 860, it says, On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. The Sabbath was a Saturday. Verse 1 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, that's a Sunday, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. They did not find the body. Yeah, come on, come on, guys. Not a clock. The last time I'm going to ask for it. Yeah. Come on. They did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, because that's what happens when you expect to find somebody dead, no no longer there. You're perplexed by these things. Suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has been risen. That's right. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all of the eleven and all of the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Okay, so the early account of the resurrection story, we have, according to scripture, the women who wake up early because the men were sleeping in. And the women go to the tomb first on the day after Sabbath, the Sunday. And they bring spices expecting to embalm the body of Jesus. They're expecting to bury Jesus. And they go to the tomb and he's not there. And they're confronted by, yes, yeah, all day. (laughs) Just today, though. No, I'm just kidding. And, and, and uh, the angels say he's resurrected from the dead, and they go back to tell the apostles and the closest friends of Jesus, they don't even believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And we continue in the story. Verse 36, let's see what happens. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified. And thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. 
see that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. And while in their joy, they were still disbelieving and still wondering. And he said the most convincing thing you would ever say if anyone questions whether or not you're resurrected from the dead. Do you have anything to eat? And he ate in front of them. I love this resurrection story. You have people, the closest friends of Jesus Christ, doubting his resurrection. He's standing in their midst. He's saying, touch my hands, touch my feet, see where, they're, where they pierced me. I'm here physically talking, breaking bread, physical stuff. And then he says to them, the most compelling thing, do you have anything to eat? And the early story is a fascinating story where the earliest um, uh, accounts of Jesus are these accounts of, of physical, of Jesus walking, of people doubting, his closest followers doubting whether or not it was him. It's just this provocative story of the resurrection, and it's the greatest story we get to tell. And this morning, I want to share with you three observations, real quick, about the resurrection. First of all, one thing that we have to say is that the resurrection changes the way the world works. Would you agree with me? Would you agree that it is our general human experience that when someone dies, they stay dead? Would you agree that we don't need a doctor necessarily to tell us that someone, when they die, they stay dead? We don't need a PhD to know those things. That is how the world works. But at the earliest and the most foundational level of the Christian story, we have this understanding that Jesus died and raised from the dead. If the world works in a way that when you die, you stay dead, then we can say that the resurrection changes the way the world works. Are you with me? And it's, it's a, 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 So that, that raises a whole bunch of provocative questions. That challenges us in so many ways, and it opens a whole new set of possibilities. If death is no longer an issue, then what else is? The resurrection changes the way the world works. That's one observation. Second observation, Jesus resurrects from the dead. He goes to his closest followers and he asks for food. Another account of the gospel story in John is that Jesus comes into the scene. He's on the beach. His disciples are, making, uh, are fishing all night long. And he's on the beach and he's cooking some, um, some fish. And he sees his disciples for the first time in a while. And he says, do you want to have breakfast? Do you find this, this resurrection story quite compelling? It's absolutely normal. One observation you have to say is that the resurrection was physical. And I know this is an obvious statement, but maybe not. We're not celebrating today that, that we're, we're, we have a disembodied afterlife. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus physically raised from the dead. In his earliest accounts, you see Jesus walking, talking, touching, seeing, physically feeling, eating food, breaking bread. It's this experience. He kisses his disciples. He gives them hugs. It's a physical dynamic. Are you with me? The third observation, and this is really important for where we're going, is that the resurrection takes place here. The resurrection takes place here. It takes place on earth. It doesn't take place someplace else. We're not celebrating the fact that one day we're going to get wings and be floating in the clouds. We're not celebrating the fact that we're not left behind. 
we're celebrating the fact that the resurrection happens right here and it happened on earth in this place. And that has incredible implications for us today. If you read the Bible, the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. And it takes place in the cosmos, but it zeroes in in chapter 2 at a place called the garden on earth. And if you fast forward throughout history, Revelation 21, another author named John writes an account of what's going to happen in the end when God restores all things once and for all. And you see that the heaven comes down to earth. That the action that God has takes place right here, that this place makes sense. So we see in the book of Revelation in Genesis, we see a garden, we see a river, we see people, we see trees, we see you and I, Jesus, God making his residence on earth here and now. We see us redeemed, restored, renewed, reconciled. That's the story of the resurrection. It doesn't take place somewhere else. It takes place right here. That means that what we do here and now really, really matters, that this place Long Beach, your neighborhood, what you believe, what you think, what you feel, who you spend time with, all of that stuff that you call life matters. If that's true, then the resurrection resources us more than anything else to live life in this world here and now. Three observations. So if this is true, if the resurrection changes the way the world works, if it's physical, And if it takes place here, and that this place, this place called earth, our lives really matter here and now, then that has a load of implications for our lives. And in fact, it challenges the way we live here and now. Are you with me? That's an introduction. (laughs) So we say, Jesus' death and his resurrection validates the life that he lived. And if Jesus' death and resurrection validates his life, then it validates the words that he spoke, that every word he said to us matters for us, that it actually will have an implication for how we live our lives today, 2,000 years later. Are you with me? Okay, good. I'm going to drink some water. So, if Jesus' if Jesus's message is still alive because he's still alive, then I want to share with you this morning the heart of Jesus' message. And its implications for us this morning. I bet you're wondering, why do we have these centerpieces? Why is the table set? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. At the core of the essential message of Jesus Christ, we want to get into that. So go to Luke chapter 14. But before that, I just want to share a couple of things um, that I love about Jesus. For those of you that don't know him very well or haven't read too much about him, you've got to know a few things. First of all, Jesus really pissed off the religious folks. Excuse my language. He made the religious folks really, really mad. The way that Jesus lived was was provocative to the culture that he lived in because Jesus had a heart for the least likely people. He had a heart for the worst sinners of his day, the broken, the marginalized, the people that your parents told you not to hang out with in grade school. He had a heart for those kinds of people. And in the first century, there were rules and regulations and there were laws set up for religious people, people like Jesus who would be considered a rabbi or maybe even a prophet, but maybe the Messiah. But people like him, they were not supposed to hang out with the people that he was hanging out with. You've got to love this about Jesus. They literally had rules that separated the wealthy, the upper class, um, those that were quote-unquote holy from the rest of everyone else, from people like you and I that didn't have a clue. And so they would, they would question Jesus all the time. They would ask him questions. And Jesus would share stories and, and share parables that would um, just challenge their worldviews. He would share stories that would flip their world upside down. 
He would share stories that would reveal the heart of God and would, would reveal the way the world was really supposed to work in the first place. And so we read this in one of the parables in Luke chapter 14. If you're there, um, great. We're going to read uh, starting in verse 16. But we read one of these parables. And um, Jesus is telling a bunch of parables, kind of revealing the heart of Jesus' message. And here's one of them, starting in 16, excuse me. Uh, Then Jesus said to them, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. Now, hold on real quick. In our language, there are certain conventions that let you know what's coming. Are you with me on that? So if I was to say to you this morning, two rabbis walk into a bar, you, you know a joke is coming, hopefully. Probably a cheesy one. Or if I would say to you, once upon a time, you know that there would be a fairy tale coming. Or for those of you that are like me, that are nerds, if I said to you, in a galaxy far, far away, you would know I'm talking about Star Wars, at least some of you. Well, in the same way, this line, um, verse 16, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. Every single person in the first century would have known what kind of story Jesus was telling. They would have had their own expectations about exactly what he was about to say. It was a way of letting them know what he was saying. That certain someone was the promised Messiah. Jesus was talking about this idea of God sending a Savior to the world once and for all that was written about thousands of years before Jesus was walking the earth. And so you see that people that were listening would have instantly caught on that they're talking about the Messiah and the certain dinner or the great banquet. That was the work that the Messiah was coming to do. Or that was the the age that the Messiah Savior was coming to usher in. So already in the first century, if you would have been hearing this story, you would have had all of your own preconceived notions, your own uh, assumptions about what Jesus was about to say, because this would have been ingrained in you since you were a child. And so Jesus is here, and let me give you a little bit of context before we finish the story. Jesus is here telling this story at a rich, prominent leader's house. He's at a religious leader's house, and, and, and the way it was set up is, if you, were, if you were invited to go to dinner, and this is where Jesus is at, he's at a dinner um, with a religious leader. If you were invited to, to have a dinner with a religious leader in the first century, you would be an honored guest and you would sit in the middle of his courtyard around a giant table. And so you'd have all the honored guests literally around this giant table talking and discussing, eating, taking a long time to eat a huge meal. It usually took hours and hours and hours in the first century. And on the outside of the courtyard, in the back, pressed up against the wall, you would have the poor, you would have the needy, you would have the crippled, the beggars, what we call marginalized, those that live in the cracks of our society. Some of the images you might have seen in just a few minutes ago in that, in that uh, video. But you have literally around the, t- the table of the courtyard, you have the, the, those that have nothing begging, and their job was to not cross the, the barrier which was invisible. Jesus is literally sitting with the haves, the religious elite, and he's around him, surrounding him, are the have-nots. The people that Jesus is getting in trouble with for hanging out. The, the, The religious leaders give him grief because he hangs out with these types of people. So Jesus is literally in that type of scenario. Can you picture it? Can you picture just the ceiling of disparity, of brokenness? of injustice. And then we read this story, a very, very common story that would have been told so many times by so many different rabbis, but Jesus gives it a twist. And here's the story, verse 17. At the time for the dinner, he sent 
his slave to say to those who had already been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to, said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another gave an excuse and said, hey, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go try them out. Please accept my regrets. And the other said, I just got married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. So the Messiah comes, the, the Messiah figure, the certain someone comes and tells the guests that have already been invited to this place to come. The dinner's ready. And then in the first century, you have the lame excuses, one after another. These are absolutely funny. Jesus was telling the story around the dinner table, and people would have been chuckling at these excuses. The first one, hey, I I, I bought some land. That's like saying, hey, uh, I just bought a house, and I haven't seen it yet. That's ridiculous. You don't do that, right? Unless you get conned into something. Um, uh, the second one, it's like buying the oxen. It's like buying an SUV and, and not test driving it before you buy the SUV. It's, it's just common. This is not what you do. And the third one is just if, if you get mar- married, and I guess it's the same. If you get married, it's just like getting married and um, having an excuse to be married. And that's totally fine. That's a good excuse. But um, <laughs> so there's three, two lame excuses and one good one. And then... Um, and then the story continues, and, and this is where you see the twist. This is where the religious people would have been angry, and this is where the people on the outside would have gasped. You've got to love Jesus. So the slave turned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes and into the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir... What you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel, literally twist their arms to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Jesus tells a story that would have been known. But its, but its turning point is absolutely devastating to the systems that were set up. You see, this would have been a controversial ending. Jesus says a defining moment. He has a defining moment with the religious leaders. And he says to the people around the table that those that you were expecting to get in, they're going to be too preoccupied for the greatest party ever thrown with their personal stuff. But those self-righteous, those that have already had their RSVPs turned in, they're going to be too preoccupied with all of the stuff they have going in their life. And Jesus flips it upside down. You see, the people sitting around the table, they had, they had already thousands of years of history of setting up certain systems, of letting people know who gets in and who doesn't, of letting people know who's blessed by God and who's not blessed, letting people know who gets to participate and who doesn't get to participate. And here Jesus is, right in the center, and saying, what you think you think, what you think you know, you don't really know. He flips the world up, upside down and makes the religious people angry. And then he says to the people on the outside, he says, those that would never think in a million years that they have a place with me, those that would never think in a million years that they could possibly be blessed by God, those that have no, no spot at the table, no place set for them, they're invited in. They're invited in. This is an absolutely controversial statement because here's the deal. In the first century, religious leaders had laws they had to obey. 
the Jewish system had set up certain laws that if you were to be blessed by God, you had to follow those laws. If you were to be holy, you had to follow those regulations. If you were to, to, uh, to be a part of God's people, you had to follow these certain regulations. And one of those laws that came into practice had to do specifically with who you ate meals with. Listen to this. In the first century, if you were to be holy, you had to separate yourself from the kinds of people that Jesus is saying, they have a part in my table too. Jesus, at this moment, brings the heart of God to us. And he uses the dinner table to bring us the heart of Jesus Christ. He uses the dinner table to reveal a God that is absolutely outrageous, that breaks down the barriers and systems and the regulations and the rules. And he uses the dinner table to symbolize exactly what the dinner table represented in the first century. You see, here's the deal. In the first century, if you sat down and ate a meal with somebody, that had loads of implications. Still to this day, an Orthodox Jew will not sit down with somebody and have a, have a meal unless they embrace that person, unless they accept that person as they are and not as they should be. The dinner table, this table, if you were to sit down with Jesus or, or with a Jew in the first century, it's simply saying that you extend grace, you extend friendship, you extend shalom, wholeness, you extend forgiveness with this person. And so in the first century, you would never do that with somebody who was a sinner. Because that, that means that you are either a sinner like them or that you've graciously forgiven their debt. You see what Jesus is doing. You see what he's doing with, with, with one little story. He flips the world upside down and he reveals the heart of God. And this is, what, this is the message. This is the point I want to make this morning. This is the only thing. That God comes into our brokenness. He comes into our imperfections. He comes into the mess of our lives, wherever we are, meets us where we're at and says, I love you as you are and not as you should be. I accept you as you are and not as you should be. That Jesus tells a story of a God who embraces us, who extends himself to us, that offers his life his forgiveness, his wholeness into us, for us, where we are and not as we should be. That is the most compelling story I've ever heard. Every other religion has it a different way. Our religion, our, our understanding of God is a God who breaks down those walls and meets us where we're at. Jesus, the Son of God, when he describes his Father and he describes what his kingdom is like, he says it like this. He invites us to pull up a chair in our brokenness. He says to sit down in our imperfections and to dine in the weight of our sin with the Savior of the world. That that's where it begins. You could say it like this. The heart of the message of Jesus and the resurrection it's sim is simply this. It means that whatever you think you are, whatever label you've accepted by the world, whatever value you think you have, whatever you've done in this life to whoever you've done it to, however you've participated in the destruction of all things on this planet, 
whatever junk you've carried in here, whatever track record you have, whatever it is that you think you value, whatever the things that have placed value on your life, whatever that stuff is, that no longer has to define you because of Jesus. The resurrection is good news. For for those of you that have your lives falling apart, bursting at the seams, Jesus in the resurrection says that um, your mess can be restored. For those of you that have accepted labels, identities, false identities of brokenness, of shame, of guilt, the resurrection says you're good enough. You're worth it. For those of you that look out towards your life and you look at where you've been and you see where you are and you just are weighed down by all of the junk and you think there is no possible way I can change, the resurrection says that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today. Or maybe some of you, maybe some of you need to hear it in a different way. Imagine a family sitting at the dinner table. A father, a mother, and two daughters. Imagine a family eating a meal. And this meal, it represents the weight of the past few months of their lives. This meal, it tastes cheap. It tastes heavy. It tastes Lighter than normal because this dinner table is a lot less food than normal. In fact, you see the cupboards are now, um, you can see the back of the cupboards in the kitchen because the food that was once stocked has no longer stocked. You see, this family's eating in months of unemployment. You see, the father at one point um, had lost his job. And just imagine this, this meal being, uh, being um, that people are eating around this meal. Father lost his job and a few months back, the first thing that had to go was the mortgage payment. And we know the story. Stops paying the mortgage in order to provide for all the other necessities. And you see, as the mortgage payments pile up and the bank begins to call, the threat of foreclosure and losing the house becomes a constant reality that this guy, this man is sitting in. But then it's not just the mortgage, it's the bills. He doesn't have enough to pay his bills. And so he pulls out credit cards. And you could just imagine the shame that he's feeling having to pull out credit cards that he's not able to pay back. He's pulling out more and more just to pay for the bills, let alone the medical bill that his little daughter Susan had to deal with. She's dealing with prescriptions and trips to the doctor, but they have to pay it. And now the medical bills are piling up and the collection agencies are calling at the home all the time. They disconnect one number and get a new number and they're sitting at the dinner table, sitting with the weight of the debt, literally tangibly experiencing the the meal in a way they've never experienced it before. You can just feel the weight. The mom sits across from the dad looking at our kids and looking and knowing that the dad, know, they know together that this meal is not what it used to be. Mom took out some credit cards to buy some shoes because she didn't want to let the husband know what, the, what was really at cost. Because the kids, and the kids, I mean, they've heard, they heard the whispers behind the closed doors. They heard about mommy and daddy possibly losing the home and they haven't complained. They haven't wanted to complain about the food. They haven't wanted to complain about the clothes and the things that they're doing and the, the field trips at school that they don't want to ask about because they actually feel the weight. And you can just imagine this family sitting and eating this weight 
of a meal. But then the door opens. And in walks in the neighbor. And it's the neighbor that doesn't knock. It's the neighbor that, that when, the, when the candles are lit, he doesn't have a clue. He comes in, throws a bag of groceries on the, on the kitchen table, comes and pulls up a chair. He's obviously not invited. They're not expecting him. He says, hey, look, brought some groceries. The mom begins to interject, and, and she says, and then he, the neighbor says, look, 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 look. Look, I know, I know, I know you're in need. I've, I've been watching what's been going on, and I can see that you're the mom begins to kind of make excuses. He just interrupts her, pulls out his wallet, and gives, throws a gift card right on the table. He says, hey, I got a gift card. It's to the local grocery store. I talked to the manager. This will be a never-ending gift card. You will never have to worry about food as long as you're in need. I already talked to the manager. You can't fight. This will always be enough for whatever you need. Feel free to use it as much as you want. The mom begins to cry, and she look at, looks at the table. She stops eating. She looks at her kids. She can't believe what's going on. She begins to cry, and he just interrupts. And as the dad begins to excuse himself, as the dad begins to interrupt, the neighbor interrupts him and says, how much do you own the house? How much do you own the house? He's refusing to answer. How much do you own the house? Tell me how much you own the house. He starts giving. He's like, no, not the back payments. How much do you owe on the entire house? What's the total mortgage? And he starts putting out numbers, sheepishly putting out numbers. And then the neighbor says, now how much do you owe on the bills? What's, what's due? How much do you owe on the credit cards? What about the other credit cards? Tell me, how much do you owe on the credit cards? What do you owe on the credit cards? They start spilling out numbers. He starts calculating. What about the medical bills? I know Susan's been sick. What about the medical bills? Give me, oh, what's the debt? He says, so, so if I did my numbers correctly, would this cover you? As the eyes of the father begins to cry and tear, the mom is hysterically weeping. He says, what if I just add an extra zero? Would that cushion you in this season of need? And as, as they begin to cry and ex- make excuses, he slams his hand on the table and says, have a nice dinner. And he walks out. And to the degree that you can feel the weight of that dinner table for that family, to the degree that you could feel the look in the eyes of that couple as they see their debt paid and all of the implications that it has on their home, on their finances, on their kids, on their meal, then you can understand what the first Christians understood when they said that what happened on the cross is what happened there, that, that Jesus paid the ultimate price to forgive our sins. It was a settling of debts once and for all. The resurrection is about freedom. And that's about it. The resurrection is about taking care of all of that junk. The early Christians knew of the type of debt they were dealing with. It wasn't just a financial debt. It wasn't just a little bit of guilt. It was the kind of debt, and maybe some of you guys feel this, it's the kind of weight that centers in on your soul, that weighs down your soul. And what Jesus does is he takes that and says, I can handle it. Resurrection is about freedom. This morning, (laughs) for those of you that think that, that story is too good to be true. It's not. It's called the good news. That's the God we celebrate. This morning, that's the story we celebrate. This is the Jesus Christ that we worship this morning. And if you know some other Jesus, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And this morning, we're simply, simply celebrating that Jesus takes in the least likely people, cancels their debt, 
welcomes them to the table, says, pull up a chair, make yourself at home, grab a cold one out of the fridge, have seconds and thirds, because the table's been set for you. This is the good news we celebrate. This is the good news we worship about. The resurrection means we have work to do, guys. Resurrection means we all get to play a part. We all get to participate. There's no bench warmers here. So let me close in this. I'll invite the, the worship, to come, worship team to come up. We're going to, uh, in just a few minutes, just stand and worship. But I just want to close with a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, uh, some of you are hearing this message for the very first time. I'm not saying you haven't heard about Jesus, but I'm saying some of you are hearing the type of grace, the type of love, the type of Jesus that comes where we are, not where we need to be, that breaks down the religious checklist, the barrier, the, 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 all, the, all the things that pile up that keep us from God. He breaks that down quite simply and just says, have a seat. Some of you are hearing that this is the Jesus Christ, not the Jesus Christ you thought of for the very first time. Some of you are hearing that the resurrection means that it actually resources us for today, not for what happens in our afterlife. And I think some of you can respond to this, but here's what I want to do. Response to Jesus is just simply an acceptance of his invitation. That's where it starts. But I want to I just make something clear. That it starts with, with an intellectual acknowledgement. But here's what I want to say. The response is so much greater than raising your hand, standing up, and receiving prayer. The response is detrimental to your life because it changes everything. The response that you could have is simply inviting Jesus to have his way. If this is the God of the Bible, let him do what he wants. And so what I'm going to ask for those of you that are hearing this for the first time, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I invite you to invite Jesus and accept his invitation. But I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to do the most provocative thing that the church should do. Just say, hey, we'll see you next week. If you want to accept Jesus, we'll see you next week. Because that's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's about living your life. It's about following him. And for the rest of us, man, how great is this story? For the rest of us that have heard this, that have known Jesus, that have been around for a while, that we're celebrating Easter for the however many time it is since you were a little kid, how great is this story? Okay, a couple of groans. That's great. I'm the only one. Um, this story is so powerful that we have to celebrate our brothers and sisters that have just welcome, been welcomed into the party. But let, may I just challenge you this Easter Sunday to look at the resurrection in a different way? And may I challenge you in the words of Jesus? Would you freaking twist arms for people to understand what God has done for them. And you can quote me on that. <laughs> Would you compel people to accept the invitation that they have to sit at the table with the Messiah? Amen? Let's stand. Let's stand and worship. I'll pray for us. Lord, you are so good. We declare you as the resurrected Son of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the message. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for settling our debts. Thank you for empowering us in life here and now. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here and that are, are stirring. There's stuff stirring. 
stuff moving in their lives. They're, they're recognizing that, man, they don't have it all figured out. And maybe they didn't, they didn't even have you figured out. Maybe they've been worshiping the wrong type of Jesus for some time. God, I pray for those people. Would you make yourself known? Make yourself alive in them personally today. Holy Spirit, bless them. And Jesus, for the rest of us, I pray that we worship with passion. I pray that we, we, we leave this with a victorious chant that you have risen and you have risen indeed. And so we, we declare that this is your day and the church gets to celebrate the greatest day on earth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the Garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org. Our hearts are open. Space for your presence to dwell and to move.